This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by the Eye Collector, available at heavymetal.com, and also signed editions, issues one to five, are available at strangerfiction.ca. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I am missing my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry, known the world over as Chasing Artwork because he's downstairs looking for his wallet. With me at the moment is my collaborator on our heavy metal series, The Eye Collector, Dr. Jonathan Ball. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Now, Jonathan didn't know he was going to be on the podcast until five minutes ago. And so, Jonathan, let's decide what's worth the time of our dear listeners. Should we talk about um, how great it is to finally have issue eight in the can? Or should we talk about how behind I am on issue nine? <laughs> Why don't we talk about the process we've been using to co-write or co-create the book? Because we've been talking a lot about that just ourselves lately. It was one, that process has changed uh, as we've kind of been moving into the second story arc. Uh, and two, I think it's, um, we've been talking a bit about this, but it's been starting to really click, I think, and go very well. Not that it wasn't going well before, but since we changed it, it's kind of been, one, I think, an unusual process that people don't always do, which is really worth talking about just by itself. But also, I think it's been working really well. It has been working well. I will say this. My wife, Tara, pointed out when I commented how our collaboration process is so fluid, but it's working very well. She said, quite wisely, I think, well, Jonathan used to be in a band, didn't he? He knows how to jam. Well, yeah, you know, I never thought about it. <clears throat> I mean, I was a singer in the band, so I wasn't playing instruments. Oh, so you didn't but care it, what others but did. It was a similar idea, though. Like, they would kind of have their jam going. I would be, like, listening, and then I'd kind of come in. You know, like, you'd have to, because I'm writing a melody, and, like, I just make up nonsense words, like, right? Like, that's right. what I would do is that you got nonsense words, you try to get the melody. Then at some point, you go and you fill it in with real words. Right. And well, that's not exactly what we're doing. But it's, it's actually it's, not too different. It's similar in that way because we come up with a nonsense version of the story, which kind of fits what we want this uh, issue to sound like, right? We want it to be this kind of sound. And then we make a nonsense version of it. And then we uh, rough that out, discuss it. I get working on it, submit pages to you, and then you start filling in elements of those. Well, let, let's even just back it up a little bit. So <clears throat> initially, well, how we started all this, so like I collector one to five, I wrote full scripts for them. The only thing was I had sort of noted in the scripts, you know, you can ignore my panel breakdowns. They're just sort of to give you some sense of pace. Yeah, and for the dear listener, the line on every page almost was, it's this unless you can come up with something cooler. Yeah, and so I felt like that was my own sort of personal little challenge, like not being a visual guy so much. My, my like personal challenge to myself was, can I create an image that where Gregory can't think of a better one? Mm -hmm. And if so, I win. And if not, I, you know... I still win in the sense that I'm getting and credit so for I'm getting credit for his game. image yeah. <laughs> that he drew because yeah. he'll all assume I told you to draw it. 
That's the one thing about comics that I think a lot of people who are new to it or who are jumping from one medium to another and saying, oh, now I'm going to write comics. I wrote screenplays or I write theater or I write books and now I'm going to write comics. They assume everything they see in a comics panel was based on the instruction of the author. Many comics are like that. Some of the best comics on earth were like that. But also some of the best comics on earth are not like that at all. That's just the assumption associated with them. So, well, and, and in this example, so again, I'm writing, originally I was writing full scripts for like issue one to five, and then you're taking it off. You basically wouldn't do the script exactly, but you, you change the, it around. Uh, you like change the flow, you change the pace. What we started to do, at a, and then I would come back and I would basically revise the script in letters to match the art better and to make it all work better. So what we kind of graduated to from that was we had uh, Lyndon, who is our letterer, but also you know kind of doing some other things. He's a writer in his own right. He's he been is a writer many his own times right. on this podcast. Although on this book, he's he's the letterer. But he what he would do is he would we got him to design blank panels. <laughs> so we had him lay out the page like in my paneling, but just blank, nothing in it. And that was just so that you could get a clearer, more visual sense of what pace I was thinking of. Because one thing we both agree with is that, especially in horror, and this is a horror comic at its heart, the pace and the tone is more important than anything else. Absolutely, yeah. And so for someone who's saying, wait, so the letterer would letter blank pages and then you would look at that as if it was a draft, the answer is yes. That would tell me how many different instances of time was being asked of me on the page. And I could further divide or expand those instances of time, but if I uh, borrowed from one page by expanding a scene, I'd have to compress another scene somewhere else. And that really gave me a sense of what are all the essential elements, pacing, tone, and because it's a horror book, what's gonna be revealed on the page turn was very obvious by seeing that because you try to pair a profound piece of dialogue with a profound image for maximum impact in comics. Yeah, and horror in many ways, I think, is all about, you know, if someone's reaching for the doorknob, like how long are they reaching for the doorknob? You know what I mean? Like that's really something that you're trying to control as a writer in many respects. And of course, in film, but there's a level of like, you can control that in a in fiction in a certain way. Like you can make sentences longer and things like this. You can change the, vary the pace of how how fast or slow you describe things. Or you can decide when that important new character is going to be added to the narrative. Justin, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> conversation right now is talking about at which point uh, in the creative process do we um, associate the word and the picture and when do we leave out the word, when do we put in the picture. Jonathan and I have a different system. You and I work similarly in the reverse order uh, on um, Dragon Annie. <laughs> Friend of the podcast, James Gillespie. Has all Another surprise. Another uh, surprise. Really I was like hoping you guys weren't going to be here because I was going to warm up my bagpipes. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Please <laughs> warm up your bagpipes. 
in the background of this episode. <laughs> At least temporarily. Are you talking about literal bagpipes, or is that a metaphor? No, I legitimately brought them back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're hoping we weren't here so you could... Do you know what, you know Chris Cornell? To warm up I the thought he was like pipes. doing vocal class or something. You know how Chris yeah, no. Cornell used to do that? He used to scream... Like in his apartment to like for hours on end because he, you, Chris Cornell from Soundgarden yeah. for the listeners, oh, yeah. he was told by he was having his vocal problems and his his doctor said you know you got to learn how to sing properly, <laughs> so he would like he went to like a vocal coach who taught him how to scream, and so he would have to practice it. So he'd be like screaming in his apartment for hours on end. The neighbors were calling the landlord and complaining. He almost got evicted. <laughs> well, we're about to have that in the background. As yeah, right. Literally, James Gillespie. I, 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 I will blow your. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll, give, I'll give you guys a smattering without the drones, but you know, plug your ears because I'm looking forward to it. So, that's without the bags. In case you're wondering what it means to live a fairly creative life, it means that sometimes a random bagpipe surprise will appear at the studio. And that's just uh, maybe, what it's like. Sex tape? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Dear listener, I apologize that we have lost the thread of our episode, but this is better. Admit it. Maybe we found it. Yeah, maybe we found it. You know what? You should stand on the fire escape and warm that baby up. Oh, do you think I could do that? Well, yeah. Could, if you wanted to. No, he'd hear it in the distance, and then it would get closer. It'd be coming amazing. through these windows, yeah. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it would be bouncing. It would at least, you know what, the, the problem is the, the low ceilings here. Oh, so yeah. It bounces off, so it sounds a lot louder. I'll do that. Uh, give a plug to uh, uh, Campbell Chanters. Uh, Kyle Campbell is a local boy who made an innovation of uh, piping chanters by adding a tuning peg to it. It's like the first innovation in like 600 years. Wow. <laughs> a local. Yeah, local really? Engineer. Cool. We'll have a link in the uh, episode description to Kyle Campbell's you, uh, bagpipe innovation <laughs> technique. Free chanter coming my way. That's right. That right is um, so how do I get to the fire station? So if you go right around that thing there, I don't think it'll trigger an alarm yeah. anymore. Yeah, you can open that. You'll see the steps. Yeah. Just yeah. follow the emergency exits. It goes awesome. to the fire escape. Godson, thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. That's so awesome. I'll probably uh, have my phone on me perfect. So we'll be I'll able to hear it later in the background. You're good. Thank you so much. Have the best podcast. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days you're going to have to come on the podcast. Yeah, actually be job, here for it's real. It's the build-up, right? It's the build-up. Oh, he just shows up one day. The next one he shows up with bagpipes. <laughs> <laughs> International man of mystery. Yeah. Um, so, like, as you guys were, were talking about this, um, just it's the, the translation of that movie in your head to the printed page is what I was thinking about. And how usually I come at this from the visual movie in my head. How do I get that down visually into beats? And then it's another layer on top of that when you start adding words. How are the flow of... Yeah, how's the flow of narrative and conversation and whatnot going to fit onto that page as well? And this is why it's so important to do a um, like a rough storyboard of your comic. And you you see it in movies sometimes too. When they are planning out a movie, especially animated movies, they'll have rooms where the entire wall will be covered with these rough little sketches of the brave little toaster going doing one thing at a time, and it just it's hundreds of these little moments because they need to really 
the the movie in your head it's it has to go through some hurdles before it it manifests itself in that same flow in that same kind of way and so roughing it out is super super important especially yeah visually and then and then with words it's a real it's a real puzzle well it's interesting you mentioned storyboards so because what we eventually graduated to because we kind of start with the normal full script kind of process we move very quickly to this blank pages where like blank panels and Lennon is you know just going out of his mind <laughs> like what are you guys doing uh, and then we'd go back because we change all the panel layouts even on, after he did them we like like it's not going to be those panel layouts just to give us a sense of pace right interestingly <laughs> I will say horror writers and comedians got what we were doing instantly sure other prose writers were like or comics writers were like you're nuts so yeah. it depends on where the punchline is but the new thing we're doing is very much we will sit down here in the studio and just like talk through like what's going to be on each page of the issue and Gregory will kind of sketch it out and storyboard it out so we'll and we'll just literally like cuz cuz I I know the overall story like originally this the eye collector was a screenplay I wrote a 100 page screenplay that was my master's thesis um you know and uh you know I, I it's very much departed from that in many respects but the overall like big tent poles of the story are still there um and so I kind of am like coming to it where like, you know, if it's issue eight, like I know kind of what has to happen in issue eight. And then me and Gregory will kind of just kick around like, okay, well, does it make sense? One, what I'm thinking, uh, or should it be different? Two, like, okay, we got like 22 pages. What's going to be on each page roughly? And what's, and, and we're usually just talking about the big emotional moments, the big plot I'm, moments. Or, I'd like to unpack one thing you said there because Justin and I do this too. Um, Part we're kicking around. You keep using the expression that we like bounce things off each other. We kick things around. The actual thing we're kicking around and why we're co-writers of the project as a result is what action will lead to what result? What is right. the cause and effect relationship of the page turn of the need for dialogue? Why does a character need to say something cool? We might say to ourselves, and we've done this, on this page, on page 22, Someone needs to say something cool here, and we'll literally write, write something cool and scary. But right? again, that's that's pace to me. Like that's a pace issue. Yes. Mm -hmm. But that's what we're bouncing around. And then once we say if this, then that. If they've said something cool and creepy here, now we need to decompress that. We can go back to uh, smaller panels, smaller moments. We're going to get back into the nitty gritty of the story because we are we know where we're trying to get to and what we're trying to do. And so we can, if if we're stuck. Uh, with narrative, we'll go visual. Okay, well, they're going to pass through this creepy corridor. What's going to be in the corridor? And I'll say, oh, well, there'll be these images of the eyes in the windows. And he says, well, we had windows at the beginning. Should we put those eyes in the beginning also and, and hint and build up towards this thing? And so we're cycling back around. When we were working on Dragon Nanny, very different audience, not horror, um, you did the opposite. You came in and you did 90% of the artwork, and then I came in and responded to some of that with narrative. So Yeah, we kept we we kept looking at the story completely visually, like not even thinking about words, and we worked it until it worked. Yeah. Right? Just really rough story drawings, really breaking it down. We had three or four um, shitty versions of the book that we had drawn out. Not shitty, just different. Yeah. No, but I, I mean like <laughs> if you were comparing not that the draft was shitty, I use the term shitty as in like the drawing is shitty because mm -hmm. 
it releases me from the need to make it really good at that draft stage. I've internalized this idea of the shitty draft so that I'll get it finished. You're going to need a bigger boat. Did you guys find as well, like when the rubber hit the road and you're actually making these pages and making the comics, that some of the best stuff came like out of nowhere? As so we just had this this morning. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so talk about this, Gregory. So um, in the new issue of iCollector, there's this idea. Is this where, eight he's talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, where the main character is building something kind of special and keeping it hidden. And I thought what would be great visually, so this was me interpreting some of the script when I went away, I'll make these solid blocks of light streaming out of the working space. I'm thinking of them as streaming out of the working space. Yeah, so it's like a house. And a, and a and character there's... is blocking in the windows. But Jonathan looked at that and interpreted it not as light streaming uh, out of the working space, but streaming into the working space. He subverted what the actual action was, not through any changes of the art, but simply having a character say what the action was. And now when you look at it at so, first, you say, oh, the light's coming from something. But then when you read it, the meaning becomes, no, the light is entering well, into a place. Let's just even get a little bit more specific. So in the actual uh, image that, the, the image that kind of turns it around is this page where there's this woman, uh, Olympia, in the comic. She, and on the artwork, it looks like her eyes and her mouth, it looks like, like light is coming out of her mouth, okay? So that's how, sort of how Gregory drew it. If you read it, like, it visually, that's how you'd Visually, it. Like there's, she's got her mouth open, there's light streaming from her mouth. And so what I wrote uh, in is, you know, this, and this character's come to board up her windows. And she says, you know, can you just leave my windows until tomorrow? And then when, on the page where the light's streaming out of her mouth, it, it says, for I so love the light. And now what the, the, the sense of the whole thing is that she's eating the light. <laughs> <laughs> and it's coming into her mouth, actually. So the image is the same, but now how you interpret it is different. And that is the magic of comics. Words and pictures together creating a juxtaposition, a new meaning that's separate. They're their own thing. Together, they're their own thing. And that is that third space so that comics let me Let me ask you this, because in the, the last episode with uh, Lyndon, while he was here, he brought some French comics with him. Oh, yeah. And I was pouring through them silently as we were talking. Do you guys think that your comic, if brought somewhere where nobody spoke English, would still work? No, they would, yeah. the meaning mm. is separate. It would still work. It would be visually interesting. It would be compelling. It would be a narrative. You'd be able to follow it, more or less. But well, I don't missing. know if you would be able to follow it. Because be honestly, it, it's hard enough to follow in many respects <laughs> <laughs> as it is. Let me it, put it to you another way. If you have a page of art, any artwork, right? If you have a picture of, uh, let's pick one that everyone knows, the um, uh, Van Gogh sunflower. Right? You have a sense in your mind of that. If you turn a comic page and there was a word printed over top of it that you couldn't read, you would see it as Van Gogh sunflowers and you would have whatever emotional connection you have to that image. If you later found out that the word was murder, murder or sex or hatred or love, it would change the interpretation in that moment of the image. Now there's intrigue. Yeah. Right? And a lot of times that's what I'm trying to do. Because again, the kind of process we've got now is we'll kind of I'll come in at the issue with like, hey, Gregory, it's issue eight. We need to have, have these three things happen. Uh, let's figure it out. And then we'll kind of break out the story. We'll figure out how it's going to go. He'll storyboard it out. Then he'll go away and draw that. 
like I'll go away and like type up notes. Like here's the notes for you, Gregory, just to document what we were talking about. There maybe is like two lines of dialogue we kind of maybe came up with that may or may not stick around. But otherwise, like I'm just ty typing up like the notes we made, and then he's got his storyboard notes. And then I'll hand that to him. He'll go draw the do the art. And then I'm coming back and I'm actually writing now to the art. So it's almost like a Marvel method, except that we've also storyboarded it together. Mm -hmm. And because we don't have the tight deadline that say a Marvel comic would have is like, you know, you've got that 30 day window. We've got a little bit of pressure release where if I've made a change to the art. So let's go back to this idea that you might compress or, uh, or um, lengthen a beat. If I've made a choice to expand a scene because I want to add tension and drama. I usually have to add some element that is not in the script. And so that element now is present as a page, which I will then text or send by email to Jonathan or we'll review it here in the studio. And I'll say, I made this change. This is what I think this means in the, in the scope of the broader story. Can we connect this somehow to a broader theme or do we need to scrap it? And if he says, oh my gosh, yes, this is just like a, B, and C, it stays. And if he's like, uh, or uh, he'll just do something, and I'll I'll see it later. So like either way, uh, regardless of how exactly it's working out, like the words that you're reading on the page are all words that I wrote after the art came in. So even though I may plan to write those words in 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 rough sense, um, I didn't actually write them till later. So. Like, what I'll often do is I'll invent some new element. Like, so this issue eight, what I invented was uh, something we weren't talking about that we didn't have a plan for otherwise. But when, the, when it came in, what I realized was, okay, I need some other thing in here for uh, sort of t just to make sense of what's going on for people. And I will need to kind of make this character Clara. It needs to be more firmly established at this point that she's kind of the main character of the story arc as opposed to Nathan who was the main character of the older story arc. So we've been kind of following Nathan but now Clara's going to take over. So uh, how I was thinking I would accomplish that, so Gregory's kind of accomplished it visually in many respects but I'm like just to firm it up I'm going to make uh, these, I'm going to have these captions that are her narration. And so you're not creating more work for Gregory, right. you're fixing right? it on your end. Yeah, so I'm like, so, okay, well, she'll be, uh, so so the solution I came up with in that scenario, which again, nothing we've talked about with Gregory so far, this is now me kind of responding to the art and how I want things to kind of be read differently and, by the... And for the dear listener, we sent it off to print today, and it was the first time I had read the issue. Yeah, first time he'd read the, the captions. So you know, or, I knew what whole, it was trying to get to, and I was so excited and surprised by this idea that the images I had created that seemed to be things expelling light was actually things consuming light, and a thought I had never had mm -hmm. that we didn't know, and this is why Jonathan and I share storyteller credit on the book. We just, mm -hmm. it didn't exist that way until he had it, and he couldn't have had that idea until I prevented but this is a thing I'm really trying to do when I get that art kind of coming back to me. Like, I'm really looking for, okay, where's the opportunity to, like, kind of subvert some of the things that we were planning? Right. Like, without changing the art, how do I kind of add an, add something to the art, you know? and I, I That's great. Yeah, and one of the ways I think that I can do it as a writer is I can have this, I can basically tell the reader something that makes them read the art differently than mm -hmm. maybe they would otherwise. The so, most yeah, boring they, comics on earth are the comics where the captions describe to you what you're looking at. Right. Yeah, like Stanley Spider-Man. It's like, you know, Spider-Man swings over the city. It's like, that joke always drove me nuts. Right, he's obviously swinging over the city. I'm looking at him swinging over the city. Yeah, and okay. he'll say it five times on the same yeah. page. So something I think we should kind of like roll back and unpack a bit is 
people listening to this podcast, you guys have an established working relationship, illustrator, writer. You guys have been working together on a lot of different projects over the years. You clearly have like a good synergy take back, you know, like it's, there's a good, there's a good working relationship here. When people are starting out, like artist and writer, it can be a bit of a rocky road. Sure. What yeah. are some what are some tips and strategies when you're starting out? If you're a brand new artist on the scene, Gregory, yeah. you're making your very first comic. Yeah. You hire writer. Yeah, you Jonathan tend not Ball. to you tend not to introduce um, the swing set in the bedroom to your new timid <laughs> lover, right? You you got to build up to that. <laughs> you need trust. You need trust. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea how to ask this question because this is the first comic I've ever done. Oh. Like the eye collector, I've, I've never I never wrote another comic before I collected number one, which then, you know, got picked up by heavy metal and the whole thing goes. But he, so I don't know like what to suggest. To mean, and in many ways I've been there. able to train him to trust. So here's the thing that but I even would that, say. We, we took, we did five issues. We kind of developed what we were doing over five issues and issue six, we started doing this new process. Mm. May I say this though? Jonathan is a poet as well as a horror writer. I have found in my time on this earth that poets respond very well to the idea of call and response, right? Where something can be presented, how does it make me feel, how do I express that feeling, and how do I present it in a new and exciting way in a short space of letters and words. So I knew that if I suggested to Jonathan, let's try some weird experimental stuff, he wouldn't say, oh no, then I won't know where the ground is. He said, okay, I bet it'll turn out cool. Well, we should do another podcast another time when I'm not running off about this exact issue because this is a particular thing that is important in all art, but especially in poetry, called defamiliarization. So, you know, make a note, producer Dan. Let's do a podcast on defamiliarization. All right. Big, so, chunky word. I'll say this. But the, the simple exactly. way to do it is like I, my, my suggestion to, to artists, letterers, whoever my one piece of advice is it should just be, you should just be trying to find ways to make it weirder. When it comes back to you, find some way to make it weirder without ruining it. We know all about you, Chief. You don't go in the water at all, do you? Some bad hat, Harry. Now, I'm working on a project uh, with a, I guess it's not announced yet. We'll just keep it under our hats. But with someone who also, this will be their first real comics project, but they are no stranger to hundreds of thousands of words of prose. Right? So they know how to construct a story, they know how to put a key piece of dialogue, they know how to make it sing when it needs to sing. What they and I have been working on is what can they do once the art comes in, exactly as you're talking about, Jonathan, to put something there that I didn't already put. We came up with the story together, we figured out the plot together. I'm being much more um, structured in the narrative, we have a plot, we're following the plot, characters are doing certain things on certain pages, we figure that out together over a long period of time. So now that that's all there, the question is, well, what should they say and why should they say it? So if you're asking yourself when you receive your art as a, as a writer who is not an artist, what should they say and why should they say it? And if they're only saying something that is already obvious in the art, Figure out something else. Well, to say. my thing is like I just want there to be as few words as possible on the page. Like, like, like I just I, I, I was making a joke uh, to Lennon earlier, which is like, or we, I guess the three of us on a text string or whatever. Yeah. We, we, we had sent a page, and I said like, yeah. He's like, oh, do these captions look good or whatever? And I was like, yeah, fine, looks great. 
And I said, uh, that's the most words I've ever put on a page. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe, uh, maybe like 80 words or something, yeah. But. Not even, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very few. But like, now I'm working on some other projects which are more comedy. Verbose. And so there's more words on a page in comedy because there's more jokes. Yeah. People are saying things that are funny, you know, yeah. so it's a little different. But still, it's like, if you're not adding something, like if the art's there, what, why bother putting words on it? Unless you're adding something or subverting the Well, art. this is what I, this is great, because this is what I was going to say about Dragon Nanny. Dragon Nanny has the least words I've ever put in one of our collaborations. Biggest book we've ever worked. And it's the biggest book we've ever done because, excuse me, the art just told everything. There was nothing I could put on it that would elevate. And only by removing, removing, removing did it remind the reader that what you're supposed to be paying attention to is the journey of the character through all these panels. If you have a caption on every panel, unfortunately, dear reader, or listener, uh, uh, the reader is going to skip and look at the words first. They yeah, may even sure. miss important elements of the art. And so I kept finding myself saying, oh, if I put this panel or if I put this, if this stuff, dialogue on Dragon Nanny, people will miss him building a sandcastle. They'll miss how excited he is when he notices that. They'll miss because they won't look at it first. I want them to look at the art first and read the words second and so that was sort of my ethos to coming to that which is why i just kept scaling back we don't even have it credited as written by me we just have a narrator credit as if like i found this film and now i'm going to add some stuff to it because that's how i approached looking at the project whereas with dragon with uh, cassian tonk and uh rust and water it was much more back and forth we were in the studio we were bouncing ideas mm -hmm. back and forth so it was a lot easier to say okay i'll take a writing credit on that my favorite thing to do is to when i because again i'm getting the art and then i'm giving Lyndon a script uh, with all the lettering in it so like page one it's like you know if you've drawn three panels i'll be like page one i'll go one two three and i'll just put like what's in each panel like this he says this clara says this me this is this yeah. whatever but my favorite thing to do is just have a page or a panel where it just says no letters no letters i'll just write no letters <laughs> And because it means that we got there already, right? Yeah, or, you know, there's just, that's, yeah, it's not going to say, I just want them to look at the page or the spread or whatever it is. and not. But once in a while, I mean, or I'll put like a caption that's sparing. Like what I find is like the more powerful the image is, um, the more I'm looking for a reason to just leave it alone. But once in a while, like in, in eight, like the last three pages are full page spreads. And I did caption them, but I think it's like three words, you know, like yeah. just to like give them a little bit of direction about how they should look at it. Because what it is, is is a character looking at this thing. So I need to give you a little bit of a sense of what, how she's interpreting right. it. Well, um, and again, but you're adding what's missing. Yeah. And I right. want you to see like how she's interpreting it and think about how you're interpreting it at the same time. So there's a little bit of a, but like. If if that wasn't important, if I didn't need to kind of lead you, like, how is she looking at it, um, then, you know, it's just about how you're looking at it, well, then you'd have no letters, right? And even that, like, you got to have, you got to give that space for the reader's um, interpretation to be alive. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll also mention that in all the projects that we've talked about so far, uh, writers and artists and all the people involved in it are essentially owners of that project. They're sharing the IP, they're... They're invested in it, and so that push-pull uh, is different than if you, as an artist who's listening to this uh, podcast, dear listener, who've been hired to do somebody else's work. They may have 
a much stricter deadline. They may have a certain number of revisions. You may just have to do what you're told. And you may say, well, I listened to some artists who said that it's going to be beautiful if we do this and that. And they might simply say, no, I don't want that. I don't want, that's not why I hired you. And you're going to have to take your lumps there. Because if you don't have, uh, for lack of a more eloquent term, skin in the game, you don't get to... Which I think it. results in a lot of creator-owned book projects is artists and writers having to work with somebody who's not a very back-and-forth um, client. Mm -hmm. You know, that frustration breeds amazing projects of your own. Of your own, yeah. yeah that's right. definitely where, yeah. like, I, I didn't plan on making books. I didn't want to make kids' books or comics. It wasn't really on my list. I wanted to be a concept artist. But then after... You know, in my early days, I was hired to make a kid's book, and I made some sequential work for some other people, and the entire time, I'm like, I could do this better my way. We had another episode where we talked about our working strategy and how this push-pull happens. Mm -hmm. um, I forget what episode it was, but it's reminding me now. Um, about a year and a half ago, I had two different people reach out and say, I'd be interested in having you. I saw your book at Port Germain, or I saw this. I'd be interested in having you do some work on my graphic novel. And I said, it's important you understand my working methods. And rather than write them all out in this email, listen to this podcast. This is how I work and why I work that way. <laughs> That's funny. Right? Yeah, and sure. both of them said, oh, I was just hoping, essentially, you'd shut up and do what I said. I'm not, no, we can't work together. Because I'm looking for someone to just um, express my ego as object. See, I don't get the point of that, though, like, personally, uh, as a writer, like, like, why would, it, why would you want... I just don't get it. I, because I, they thought they were finished. They wrote But it. if you're finished, that's... But you're not finished. Like, well, we know <laughs> that. It's a comic. Yeah. It's a script. Like, I, I teach, I teach um, screenwriting. And the, thing, the first thing I teach in screenwriting is, look, you got to get it through your head as a writer that screenplays are not literary documents. They are not literature. They are just a bunch of junk on a page, and then artwork comes later on. The text in this instance becomes the film itself. No, it doesn't. That's my point. It doesn't become the film itself. The only words on those pages no, what I mean is, that get translated uh, is the dialogue. Yeah, we're, maybe we're agreeing. Yeah. But it, like in uh, in the study of English or film, the word text, T E X T. Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, you're right. The, the text is the final the document. The film. The 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 script is not a text. It is yeah. not a literary text. Yeah. It's not a literary document. So if you want to be writing a literary document, you work in prose. Yeah. You work in poetry. You do not write comic scripts. You do not write screenplays. That's just all there is to it. So if you want to work in comics or film, your collaborators are artists who have. Uh, who are creating the text, and Which you can't maybe why be telling them what to do. It doesn't make any sense. Why would is, you? This is why where we started talking about music, right? Whereas Tara said, oh, well, he used to be in a band, so of course he can collaborate pretty well. Yeah, it's just like, I can't play guitar. Why would I tell the guy what chords to play? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, it's, it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but people constantly have this attitude that, like, oh, you know, I'm going to tell the artist what to put in this panel. Like, why? Why would you ever do that? It's, first off, it's a waste of your time yeah. because they're going to draw whatever makes more sense. Or, worst case, they'll draw what you tell them to draw. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just, it, it makes zero sense. Um, so Unless you're, you yourself are an artist yeah. and you just don't have time to draw and you decide to delegate the drawings. Yeah. Well, I will say this. Uh, Scott Henderson, who's working on a project with us right now, uh, sent me a text, which I decoded. So, Scott, if you're listening, this is how I interpreted that. <laughs> the question was, 
Do you want me to follow your thumbnails exactly or submit my thumbnails for approval before I draw this? I realize what he's saying there is, very tactfully, I have a way better idea than you presented me. Can I just do it, please? Right? To which I said, yeah, just do it. Right? Uh, the reason we hired you is because we trust your ability to execute once you've been given some instruction. Mr. Hooper, touch the end of this line to the first keg. This is part of being <laughs> so on the team, good, right? Yeah. Like, the drummer doesn't change the tempo, right? Yeah, he does. No. Do you but, know what I mean? But not without the band then Yeah, he doesn't, matching. after they've written it, he yeah. doesn't start playing a different this drum. This is what I'm saying, is once yeah, you've yeah, agreed sure. to what song you're playing, you don't put it in from 4-4 time to some other signature. Well, just to go back to the music thing for a second, uh, so... By the I way, used I've to used know, all my music knowledge in that sentence. Well, I used to it's know musicians, so I was a singer and I would write the song, the lyrics. Um, but, you know, they're writing the music and whatever. So typically, you know, they have, like, the, one of them has an idea and then they would get they, together, they start jamming, you know, they'd elaborate on each other's idea. Eventually, there's something like a song in place and then I can start writing a melody to it and so right. on. So what I would have to do is I'd have to kind of sing nonsense until I could get some lines that would come to me and then I'd start building a song lyric around that. Now, other people I know would come in with written lyrics and they'd be like trying to like force the lyrics into the song or they'd, they'd be saying like, hey, here's the, they'd like sing a melody or whatever. And then these guys got to try to write a song to the melody. And I never understood that process. Like it just didn't make sense. And to that's me. those authors coming to you, forcing that script mm -hmm. into right. your art, right? Yeah. It's just, it's not going to work as well. And again, it just I, won't work as well yeah. is the way to put it, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, this, like, think about the audience. Does do people really care what the guy's saying when they sing? Bob Dylan, do you really care what he's saying? Like, not this, to belittle Bob Dylan's poetry, but like, Nirvana is a better example. Do you care what he's really saying? Right. You probably don't know what he's saying. First off, nobody can understand that guy's lyrics <laughs> to start with. Um, and then once they could decode them, like, and figure out what he was saying, it made less sense. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I think. Kirbyan was a good lyricist, you know, as a literature professor who yeah. you know studies surrealistic poetry and so on. I think Kirbyan was an excellent lyricist. But do you think the average person agrees with that? No. We just at a country they don't wedding give a shit what this weekend, and we were having a heated debate about the lyrics of Cotton Eye Joe, and <laughs> what they were, what they meant. No, let's and not like do it. let's all... not do it on this podcast. No, no, no. But what was great about Cobain as a singer and a lyricist was that. He was clearly just saying something that worked for the song. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, he's getting the sense and the tone. And to me, like in horror especially, the sense and the tone rule all. And actually, this was something, this is like a comfort blanket I've been using when I'm working on my new book is, I don't know what the characters are going to say, but this environment and this situation is so cool, it doesn't matter that much. As long as I like it's serviceable, the the situation is going to get the reader through this awesome yeah. part. Yeah. Now the challenge is, how do you figure out something amazing for them to say right. that'll elevate it yeah. all? I'll worry about that later. But yeah. the important yeah. thing is, the like, like there's there's sense and there's tone, right? Like to me, like in 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 certain genres, especially in horror, tone trumps sense. If you have to pick one, you pick tone. You always right. sacrifice sense for tone. But ideally, you get to do both. I think that's what comics is in a way. It's usually sacrificing 
uh, sense for tone because the art is why it's a visual medium. People like certain artists and they know instantly when they flip through it, I like this art, I'm gonna buy this comic. They have to read it to know if they like the writing. Yeah. Right? But they can flip through it and go like, oh yeah, I, this is worth my time. And the writing can bring it up or crash it down. That's yeah. right. The tone is what sells it to the you. The tone yeah. is what's selling it to you and the yeah. sense but comes like, in later. I think your job as a writer in comics is, number one, don't ruin it. <laughs> if you're just not ruining it, yeah. then after that point, you can try to make it better. But if you, your main job is to not ruin it. So the other thing I will say is if you are a person who is looking for an expression of your own ego as an object, learn to draw yourself. I have plenty of projects that are my way and that's it. And I've written and drawn them myself and I don't want anyone's input and I'm going to do it that way. And if someone had said, oh, do you think this should be more blue or you should have more panels in there? I would say, no, I did it my way because I expressed my ego as this object. Do you sing the Sinatra song? Sometimes, no, I don't. But if you are, cannot do those parts, you must cede. You must give up control. But it's not even about people. you must do it. It's like, why would you bother you sure? not doing it? Like, why, why would you just take on a bunch of work that you can't do? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like I'm going to dig my own uh, septic tanks. Like, well, why would I do that? And you have to know uh, when to have the author leave, which is right now, because you have somewhere to yeah, go. Yeah, I've got to go, so <laughs> I appreciate it. You artists take over and run the show. So 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out, the sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Now that we've had a star-studded cast on this episode, Star-studded cast. We've got, give or take, we've got about uh, uh, an idea or two left in this episode, Justin. So at the beginning, I started one-on-one -on -one with Jonathan and asked him to unpack some of the stuff we've been doing. So now that I've got you all to myself, dance here also. Dance here but also. You are writing your own project now. Yes. And it's not a little project. No. It's an enormous project. Big. What is the part of your brain that you're saying, writer Justin will have to solve that? Do you compartmentalize it or are they mashed together? I'm, no, it's a little bit, they're definitely separate. They're separate entities, writer Justin and artist Justin. And writer Justin is a lot less developed. He's a little greener. He's a little fresher. Um, so artist Justin is getting solid pages created and then writer is coming in and like filling in the blanks like tightening those up and after doing enough pages that way then the writing has kind of figured itself like that's that pattern that flow is figured out it was so hard it was impossible to come at this big project as solely as a writer thinking that the art would come last like that wasn't going to work for right. me i tried to make that work as like, clearly that's not going to work so i'm i'm making art because that's what that i'm good at and then the writing is coming after so now that i have some solid art pages done the writing makes sense and can grow and develop from there does that so, make sense yeah it totally In a does. rambling way no it's good because mm -hmm. when i'm working on um say a project like uh the minus institute which i have the first um convention exclusive piece together 
it came or arrived to me completely as these are the images I want to use, these are the um, visuals I want to use, how can I justify their use? Then writer Gregory had to come in and say, okay, if these are the visuals we're going to see, everyone's wearing these smart 1950s suits, everyone is like bursting from strange internal alien attacks, then it must be set in the 1950s. Maybe it's an alternate history. Maybe it's an alternate history where, fill in the blanks, right? So I was responding to, the own, to my own set of visuals at first, and I realized that this most clearly when I put this collection together because I've been working on this theme, this story, in rough ever since about 2009 when I did the Imagination Manifesto. There's three stories in the first three, in the three volumes of the Imagination Manifesto that are titled uh, Magic Words. And those stories are the proto stories for what became the Minus Institute. So these have been knocking around in your brain since 2000, and you just finally just- I'm just finally realized yeah. that this new project is this is 22, is 2022 Gregory is capable of executing a project I was trying to do then and it was never working it. Yeah. It would only come out as these little short bits and I couldn't find the language and it never, people liked it. People really responded to it, but I did, I did not like it. It didn't respond to me. And then when I realized that I needed to recontextualize it, so I went back and I took one of the about uh, 15, 16 page stories out of the Imagination Manifesto and I reworked it. I did like a George Lucas moment yeah. where I went back in and uh, instead of uh, taking out the walkie or the guns and putting in walkie talkies, I took a visual language that I had developed and added it over top and realized, oh, now it works perfectly. Because you're a better artist and writer than you used to be, which That's is the right. greatest part of our industry is that we're always getting better. They put the guns back in, by the way. Did they put them back in? Yeah, I just went and saw the 40th anniversary and the guns are back in. The guns are back in. So don't mess with it. So what you're saying is I shouldn't have messed with it? Damn. Damn it. Oh, so, okay. In a few more years, I'll regret that decision. But the reason is what you're talking about. But I also have grown in that 15-year period as a graphic designer. Mm. And my studying, my regular study of semiotics and like how images acquire meaning, how the repeat of a symbol, then the viewer will then prescribe a meaning to the repeat of that image. I realized I'm better at doing that than I was when I first started doing magic words, and which was sort of the premise. It was like yeah. me writing the thesis statement, but not knowing how to write the essay. And now that I've written the essay, I've gone back and adjusted the thesis statement, if you will. Another thing to like the behind the scenes, your business hat has also changed shape and gotten quite a bit bigger totally. as well. So in yeah. 2009, if you wanted to make this into a book, you're looking at thousands of dollars to do a yeah. run. But now, because you can do yeah, smaller 20, runs. About $20,000. About $20,000. Yeah. So now that we have a bit, we have better print on demand and smaller run printing technology, 2022 Gregory's able to like quality, yeah. get this story together and only print like what how many did you print a couple hundred copies so what's cool about convention exclusive material if you're your own artist because you can add content change covers make a new object so that it's it's 
it's a chase chase item is sometimes the term that mm. is used, even though um, since I'm next to chasing artwork all the time, I don't use that item uh, description. But because of that, it means that I can do runs of 100 or 200 or in some cases 500 of a book uh, where even though the cost per unit is much higher, the ask because you explain to your regular customer there's only 500 of these or there's only 100 of these, you're able to ask for a proportionally higher resale value because they recognize the object is rare. And so the scarcity principle, it kicks in and they say, okay, yes, this isn't a big run comic. And I'm one of a few hundred people that has this version. Yeah, I'll happily pay $10 or $25 for an object that if I found it at the store as a mass market thing, printed 20,000 copies of, I'd only want to pay $5. I wouldn't pay more than $5. It's like such a great time to be a comic book maker. I'm often like a little disappointed in our co-workers in Comic-Con land, like more artists not making books. It's hard to make a book because you believe that you're not good enough. Remember, I, I've been using this term, maybe this is what we'll call this episode, ego as object. If you don't have a strong sense of self-worth to begin with, that gets in the way of believing you had anything to say. So a book as an object, the assumption is this person has something to say. And if you're not believing in yourself all that much, even though you might be extremely talented, and we see artists all the time who are extremely talented, I think what you're describing is their inability to see their own worth. And sometimes that is the role of an editor or a publisher to come in and say, right, wow, you're really talented, please work for me. Unfortunately, the market is so saturated, the margins are so thin right now, um, no one's showing up with a clipboard to say, we're the talent scouts, it turns out you're the person we've been looking for, here is your Hogwarts letter. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> there is also hundreds upon thousands of people submitting queries nonstop. Non Every like agent and publisher I'm sure, I don't know how many emails a day, but everybody's got a book that they want to get made. Right. Nobody's going to come looking for you to get your book made. Yeah, you got to just make some of it and then put it out in the world. Smile, you son of a bitch! What 2009 Gregory knew was, if I don't put it out now, these stories that I've finished, I never will because next year they will be better, but then I won't have a body of work. Yeah. And one thing that I knew from owning a comic store is that you could follow a person's body of work over a course of their lifetime if they were publishing. And you couldn't if they didn't. So uh, Paul Pope is a good example. He did through Horse Press, which was his own publishing imprint, he printed THB, which was an experimental, black and white, crazy comic, action, adventure, kid, detective, robot fighting, mechs on Mars kind of story. Um, these 40, 60 page volumes that he would self-publish and they were impossible to track down because the print runs were low comparatively to comics at that time. And uh, because they were black and white stores, didn't bring them in, but they were of such bombastic energy that anyone who saw one wanted the rest. And he, or whoever he was asking at the time, had the foresight to make sure that each individual issue 
didn't really have the number of the issue mm. front and center. In fact, they were really labeled strangely, like you'd have THB3B, THB3A, THB3C, <laughs> right? And so you're like, what is this? I don't even understand. It didn't fit the convention of comics. So it became a chase item. It became something you're like, I want to figure out this puzzle. This was early days of the internet, so there wasn't solutions to be had by just Googling it. But he went on to uh, fame and fortune doing Battling Boy and doing 100% and doing um, One Trick Ripoff and Batman Year 100. He's done like, you know, some high profile books in comic book land. But if that body of work hadn't existed, editors would not have known to ask about him, to check in on him. Maybe this guy's ready. Maybe this guy's ready. Maybe this guy's ready. Those so, stepping stones. And right. yeah, when I was asking earlier about artists and authors working together for the first time, like that's that usually that first book project, it's probably somebody's not going to pay you for it, right? right? Your very first book, it's going to be hard to get money for your very first book. But you need to make that first book yeah. so somebody will pay you for your second yeah. and pay you a lot more for your third. And money is stored labor. So if yeah. you have labor to give, Right? It's like you're being paid. You're paying yourself. You're betting on yourself. Mm -hmm. Putting in a few hours a day on your own project or 20 hours a month or 20 hours a year even. As long as you're piling it in a place where there's a body of work to show somebody, then people will look at it and say, oh, I think you're ready. Uh, my book, Underworld, that I did with Laverne Kazursky, uh, we've said on other podcasts, before, uh, episodes, he ripped apart my early work. But because I had a body of work, he kept track of it. And at a certain point... He got in touch with me and said, would you like to illustrate my graphic novel? And I responded by saying, I thought you said I was awful. And he's like, well, you were awful, but you've been working at it for years, and I've been watching you develop to the point where I think you can do what I need you to do in this project. That's, no body of work, there's nothing for anyone to follow. And that also that helps a lot with, um, yeah, with criticism and um, rejections and, and whatnot. If, if you only are ever doing, if you have one story, one thing, and that's it – you know, every criticism against it and every rejection to it is like an arrow to the heart. But if you're like Gregory and I and you have a whole bunch of irons in the fire and you're doing all these things, like criticism on this 3A project doesn't matter because you're on to 4X and 5-2. And and, the more projects right. you have, you can spread the criticism. Your self-worth yeah. may only be wafer thin, but if you can spread that criticism across enough projects it won't penetrate your self-worth and you'll you'll be intact That's yeah yeah no it's it's true somebody yeah criticizing a book from 2014 doesn't yeah. really phase me because i've made nine since you yeah. know yeah but if i only ever had that one book and somebody had something to say about it like i think it would it would hurt more it hurts more your <laughs> first one yeah and let's be this is a good way to round out at some point, you were your young self, or maybe you're an old self now, and you're saying, I'm going to start a project, I'm going to do something, and you show it to someone that you hope will give you positive feedback, and then they don't. They either give you no feedback, uh, apathy is more poisonous than criticism, mm -hmm. I think, um, and you just feel yourself completely deflated. I think it's really important for you to put that project down and start something else right away so that you can compare the two things. Because then the motivation becomes intrinsic. Okay, they didn't like it, no one cares, fine, nobody cares. Is the work I did today better than the work I did yesterday? 
If the answer is yes, then I'm moving in the right direction. If you're like, ah, no, it's about the same, then seek mentors, seek mm -hmm. learning, seek skills, right? Figure out how to make it better. If you keep getting apathy as your feedback, work on the work. It doesn't mean you don't, you're not of worth. It just means the work hasn't yet caught people's attention. It's not ready for prime time. And this is why Comic-Cons are always my first recommendation for anybody who wants to be an illustrator full-time. Like the, the jet fuel that is an artist alley, seeing all those other artists surrounded by people who are better than you, and then having another event in six months or a year later to prepare for, to do it again and again. Yeah. Like that, that was like my productivity and, and skills and, and everything went up like tenfold once I started doing cons because every show I had to have new stuff. I had to, like I was, you know, in the, the mud competing with other artists to like get people's attention. And that just, you know, it worked for me just lighting a fire under my butt. Yeah. And it's a piece at a time. Uh, at the yeah, Montreal Comic Con, I went to this booth where the person was selling all these great pieces of artwork as stickers. And this isn't the person, but here's another great sticker I think you got from there too. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, do you ever do comics? They're like, oh, I wouldn't even know where to start. And I had bought five of their stickers and I stuck it to one of my books. I said, oh, you already have everything you need to make comics. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, look at this great background. I stuck it to my, the back of my sketchbook. And then I said, look at this great figure. And I stuck it on top of the background. I'm like, there, that's a page of comics right there. And the look on this person's face, they were in their maybe early 20s, maybe 19, were like, oh, wow. I'd never thought to just combine those things. And I was like, I thought that that was kind of, at first, silly. But then I realized 19-year-old Gregory wouldn't have thought to do that either. Right? I didn't realize what I was capable of until someone else came and said, psst, right? you could probably try this and it would work. Right? So the, that look on their face, I hope next year. Yep. I will see some comic pages from that artist. And all, I hope all they do is take the vector files of their stickers and overlap them with a bunch of things and say, aha, that's comics. Right? So this has been Super Pulp Science, where we've talked about how genre gets made. We've had many special guests on this episode of Super Pulp Science. And this is Gregory Kamichuk encouraging you, too, to join the fight and make comics. <laughs>